Well, I have the uh, pleasure of introducing to you today uh, Stephen Schwartzman, who has kindly agreed to lecture our class. Uh, Mr. Schwartzman uh, graduated from Yale in 1969. He uh, was at Davenport College. Do we have any Davenport people here? Any? Uh, a few, not, <laughs> not a lot. Uh, he graduated then from uh, Harvard Business School in 1972. Uh, he worked at Lehman Brothers um, as, I don't know if that was his first job or one of his first jobs, uh, and became managing director at Lehman Brothers at age 31. Uh, and he became head of their global mergers and acquisitions team. In 1985, uh, Mr. Schwartzman, uh, with Peter Peterson, founded the Blackstone Group which has become the lead manager of alternative assets. Uh, in some sense, what he does and what uh, David Swenson does, whom we had heard from earlier this semester, is similar. They're both looking at unusual and different investment assets. Uh, and they are both uh, very successful in doing this. Uh, Mr. Schwartzman's firm has uh, had a return on private equity investments of 23% a year uh, for the last, on average, for the last 20 years. Uh, this is uh, a little bit in excess of David Swenson, <laughs> but I think we have to put them both as uh, remarkable uh, investors. In the real estate group at Blackstone, they've had 30% a year for the last 15%, for the last 15 years. And this is after fees. Uh, so um, uh, Blackstone Group has been uh, very much in the news uh, recently. It just came out um, that uh, they are uh, apparently going to be buying uh, $12.5 billion of leveraged loans from Citigroup uh, at, at a steep discount. Uh, and so apparently they've seen a profit opportunity there, or they're supporting our economy from the uh, ravages of the subprime crisis. Also in the news, China has announced that it plans to buy $3 billion stake in Blackstone Group uh, as uh, its first uh, effort to diversify its uh, $1.2 trillion of foreign exchange reserves. So the Blackstone Group was picked by the Chinese government as the most fitting place for it to put uh, some of its uh, reserves. So with that, I will... Uh, Leave it to Mr. Schwartzman, who will speak uh, for a while. Thank you very much for coming out on uh, what's a, a bit of a dreary, uh, slightly rainy morning. Uh, when I was in uh, an undergraduate, uh, we wouldn't have gotten much of an attendance. People would have been sleeping in. Uh, so uh, it's, it's awful nice of, uh, of you to be here. Uh, there, there, there are some dramatic differences uh, from when I was an undergraduate and you are. Uh, one of the first differences is that this course wouldn't have existed because no one had an interest uh, in finance uh, uh, at that time. Uh, it wasn't a particularly interesting uh, uh, time uh, in, the, in the 1960s. Uh, the securities markets uh, actually were, were, were regulated. Uh, you know, commissions were fixed uh, on the uh, New York Stock Exchange, so it was very difficult to find some way to uh, compete. It was sort of a rigged system, if you will, uh, and uh, uh, you know, it, it wasn't wasn't open, uh, and, uh, and 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 so there was very little to no interest, uh, really, uh, in uh, uh, finance. Uh, uh, you know, there 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 really wasn't uh, a uh, uh, an SOM uh, uh, school of management uh, uh, at Yale uh, at, at that point. Uh, business uh, generally was utterly unfashionable. Uh, we were in the midst of uh, the Vietnam War, uh, and uh, uh, business was uh, sort of linked to the perception of that war because they supplied, you know, certain types of, uh, uh, you know, uh, war materials, and, and that was the the most unfashionable thing that you could be uh, involved with. So there was a very anti-business, uh, 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 non-existent uh, finance orientation 
at, at, at the school, and obviously uh, that's changed in the society uh, uh, generally with uh, enormous uh, uh, differences. And, and as a result of when I grew up, uh, I, I didn't even take an economics course uh, at, at Yale. I, I frankly wasn't much good with math. Uh, I, I stopped in the 11th grade, and, and uh, you know, I, 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 I think calculus was, was for me, uh, that was way too much of a reach. Uh, so I, I'm more in the add, subtract, multiply, and divide kind of uh, category, uh, which, which worked uh, and still does uh, you know, uh, quite well uh, for me. And uh, when, when I, I graduated, um, I was lucky enough to get a job at, a, at a, uh, a firm that had just gone public. It was the first New York Stock Exchange firm that had just gone public. It was called Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenneret. Uh, and and uh, Bill Donaldson actually uh, founded uh, the School of Management uh, uh, after he left uh, uh, DLJ. Uh, and, and that was, because this is a financial markets course, that, that was quite interesting for me because I, I, I didn't even know what, what common stock was uh, when, when I graduated. Uh, hopefully you will have learned more uh, in, in this course. And, and I, I went to DLJ, I couldn't read a financial statement, which is like going to a foreign country and not being able to speak a language. It was sort of hopeless. Uh, but, but one of the interesting experiences I had uh, about, which, which really, now that I'm a little bit older and can look backwards uh, on, on financial markets, uh, it was, was my first visit to a company. And uh, DLJ basically was, was one of the first large institutional stock managers uh, uh, of, of pension fund assets and so forth. And um, um, I was allowed to go and interview uh, a, uh, a company. I'd never interviewed a company executive, and I, I read you know, their annual report, and I went up to see this uh, gentleman, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, I, I sat there, and I figured out all the things I'd want to know so that, so that I could figure out whether I, I should buy his stock or invest in his company. And, I went through my list of questions, and he wouldn't answer most of them. And uh, I, I, I found it a very frustrating uh, experience. And I, I went back to the office, and by the time I got back to the office, uh, Dick Jenneret, who was president of the firm, had gotten an enraged phone call from this uh, executive and, um, uh, and called me into his office, and he said, geez, you made this man very angry. I, I said, well, how could I do that? I was just asking questions, uh, and he wasn't answering them, so I just, like, asked the question again. Uh, you know, I couldn't quite understand why he wasn't answering me. He said, well, you were asking him things that he's not allowed to answer. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you were asking him for inside information. I said, well, I don't know what inside information is. I'm just asking the question that I need to know to know the answer, whether to buy the stock or not. Uh, and he said, well, Steve, there are all these rules of what you can answer, ask uh, somebody, and then if he tells you, then he has to tell everybody in the world, and, and you know, that's just too cumbersome, and so uh, you know, um, uh, that's why he didn't answer. I said, well, if he didn't answer, how in the world can you figure out what to do? Uh, and I said, I'm, I'm not that smart. I, I need to have all relevant data. And, and he's the person who has it, so why won't he give it to me? And it became pretty clear that I was doing the wrong thing for a living. Uh, and uh, in effect, that's the dilemma uh, for people uh, who want to buy uh, liquid securities. And I decided very quickly this was a bad business, uh, uh, certainly a bad one for me that I couldn't figure out how I could win that game, uh, you know, when somebody wouldn't fully share openly everything they knew. Uh, and um, I guess if you were like a sumo with a good fashion sense, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that's how you manage liquid securities and beat other people. It's not just what you know, it's, it's, it's a question of, of whether the rest of the world will buy into what you know and drive that security up. And so I. Uh, basically retreated uh, and went to Harvard Business School where I figured maybe somebody will tell me how this game really works in a way that uh, I can prosper in it. Uh, and uh, that was a good experience for me. Um, uh, and um, 
that they basically taught you, and you're undergraduates, so you don't know what they're teaching you at a school like that, so I can explain it actually pretty clearly. It's, 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 it's basically they're teaching you that everything you do with a company has something uh, 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 else to do with that company so, so that it's an integrated system. So, so, so that uh, if you um, are trying to develop a product for sale, it would be good to know whether somebody wants it, right? Uh, so, so, you know, what happens actually in the real world uh, is that sometimes people just get an interesting idea and they'll produce a product and nobody will want it. And if you, if you uh, uh, integrate all the different kinds of knowledge in, in the company so that you're doing intelligent things, and I know this appears very elementary, you'll have a better company. That's sort of what they were teaching. And, and after they taught that for like two or three months, I, I, I sort of got it uh, and thought about dropping out of school because it got a little repetitive, um, frankly. Uh, but I was convinced uh, uh, by, by my friend Dick Generet, who also thought about dropping out of Harvard Business School uh, uh, in December. It gets very cold in Boston uh, and really miserable. Uh, and he was going to drop out and go and get a PhD in economics. I was going to drop out and go back to the real world, and he, he said that his staying on was a good thing and I should stay on, and, and so uh, I, I did. And, and what I've sort of done for a career is try and solve that problem of my initial meeting, uh, where uh, people will, uh, I want people to tell me what's really going on so I can figure out, you know, whether what they're saying makes sense or doesn't make sense. Uh, and, and you can do that. Uh, in, in the private equity business, which uh, uh, was sort of our largest business. Uh, and you could do that in the real estate business because uh, you're, you're allowed to get all that inside information if you're trying to buy a company with our rules and also the rules of other companies, uh, countries. If you sign a um, um, confidentiality agreement that, that you won't use that information for any purpose other than buying the company and putting a price on it, and then the shareholders get a chance to vote on whether they want the price that you give them. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, to me that was, that, that was like an answer to my conundrum uh, of how can, I, how can we get all the information uh, and, and then figure out what to do with it, including improving the company. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you know something uh, about private equity. Uh, if you read the general newspapers, I'll tell you basically what it is. Well, all we do is we, we, uh, uh, we, we buy companies, uh, and, and that's the simplest thing we do. We do a lot of other things, but let's start with, you know, we buy companies. Uh, we borrow money uh, to buy those companies. Uh, historically, uh, it's been about, uh, you know, $3 of debt for every $1 uh, uh, of equity. Uh, we then improve those uh, companies. Uh, you know, through a whole variety of, uh, you know, sort of managerial uh, uh, actions. Uh, and, and then those companies grow with the general economy. And uh, let, let's say if they just grow at the regular rate of all companies, uh, then uh, uh, if you're leveraged three to one, you're going to earn a much better return. Um, if you take a company and can accelerate its growth, so it's growing faster uh, because you've improved it and you have three to one leverage, you'll, you'll um, get a way better return uh, than, than any normal uh, stock market uh, kind of return. Uh, and, and that's sort of the model uh, of what we do in that business. Uh, as Professor Schiller was saying, uh, we've, we've compounded uh, after fees at 23%, uh, but before fees, uh, because we, we, we charge a 20% uh, part of the profits of the deal goes back to the general partner, which is us. Uh, we, we, we've actually earned around 31 percent, uh, uh, which, uh, you know, from you being in a course like this, you'd see is that's really pretty high, uh, you know, compared to a stock market average over a period, which would be around 11. And, and in real estate, um, where, where we do the same kind of thing, uh, but, but real estate is an easier business uh, because buildings don't talk. Uh, uh, managements of companies talk. Uh, and you have to figure out what they're saying. Companies are very complex. Uh, uh, you know, you have interesting competition. Uh, you have global competition. Uh, it's, it's a complicated uh, uh, asset class. Real, real estate is very simple. I mean, you know, there, there's a, you know, buildings don't talk. Uh, and so 
you can't get misled by a building. They can't tell you something. They don't have a belief system. And it's just there. It's on the corner. It's in the middle of the block. Uh, uh, and, and there are other buildings that either are getting built or, or, or planned. Uh, and, and you can figure out what the supply demand is for real estate uh, in a much easier way. Uh, and and uh, uh, because of that, uh, our, our returns in, in real estate have been uh, uh, better because it's an easier asset class. Uh, and and we, we've earned after uh, fees 30% a year since we started, uh, and before fees close to 40%. So this alternative asset class, if, if handled right, is, is really uh, a much better way uh, of, of earning money uh, for, for investors, uh, as well as the general partner, let's not forget us, uh, than, than uh, regular financial markets uh, in investing. Uh, and and uh, you know, that, that, that world uh, has been started very small. Uh, when we started it, the institutions had less than 1% uh, of their assets. It was like infinitesimal uh, in, uh, in the private equity side of the business. Uh, it's now up to about 4.5%. Uh, and the returns are so much higher, you'd wonder why uh, people don't give us all their money uh, on, on an asset allocation basis. And I, I actually still wonder uh, why they don't, uh, since we put most of our money uh, in that and we keep making more and more uh, and outperforming. And you know, it just takes the rest of the world, apparently, the equivalent of your lifetime uh, to sort of uh, figure out exactly uh, what, what they should be doing. And, and, and you know, I think the projections are that that this should be growing at uh, a lot faster uh, rate, uh, you know, going into the future, uh, and 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 uh, some institutions like Yale have uh, uh, private equity with around, I guess it's around 16, 17 percent. It was up to 18 uh, of their portfolio, and that's one of the reasons why Dave Swenson uh, has done uh, much better uh, than uh, regular money managers. Uh, turning to a different subject, it's a financial markets course. And I thought it would be useful to talk to you a little bit about what's really going on uh, in the real world, uh, e even though this course is, is, is being uh, uh, recorded, uh, you know, and whatever you say about the, the, the current moment turns out to be right or wrong, but it's just a current moment. It's such a fascinating one. Uh, and, and you all are, I guess, somewhere between uh, uh, 18 and 21 years old, probably 19 and, 19 and 21. So, so you don't have the perspective to understand how really uh, uh, interesting and dangerous uh, this uh, current environment uh, is. Uh, what, what's happened uh, uh, is, is, is that um, through uh, an abnormal uh, in, in, uh, issuance of something called subprime uh, securities, for nobody in this audience, certainly people watching, uh, you know, have uh, probably own a house, um, uh, and and w what happened is that in, in the late 90s, the government uh, in Washington uh, was passed a law to encourage more uh, 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 low-income people being able to buy houses, and resulted, uh, along with other factors, in an explosion of of these types of uh, loans and. Um, in terms of, of loans, and Professor Schiller can correct me if I'm slightly off on this, but in the year 2002, uh, of the total mortgage, uh, mortgage loans that were originated uh, for, for, for houses, uh, probably around 2 to 3 percent of them were subprime. Uh, uh, and th these are for people who don't have enough money uh, to really pay normal principal or interest and, and, and expect uh, their, their mortgage to be current. Uh, to not go into default. Uh, and by 2006, this had exploded uh, to 30% of, of all the mortgages that were issued that year. When you go to two, from 2 to 3% to 30%, this is, this is an almost out-of-body experience. Uh, and and uh, to, to entice these people to take these loans, uh, they, they actually... Uh, uh, would tell somebody uh, in, in the olden days when, when I was your age uh, to buy a house, you had to put up like 25% of the cost of the house. 
uh, you know, sometimes you, you'd have to put up 20% uh, of the cost of the house and you can borrow 80. Uh, these subprime loans, sometimes you, you only had to put up 3% of the cost of the house. Sometimes you, you didn't even have to put up anything. Uh, that makes it really affordable. Uh, and, and then uh, you didn't have to pay any interest for, for two or three years. So you put up nothing and you paid nothing. So this led to um, you know, a stampede of people who wanted this. And what's happening now uh, is, is that uh, uh, the mortgage, uh, the, the interest, which no one, uh, a lot of these mortgages didn't have to pay, now two to three years later you have to pay it. And a lot of the people who didn't have the resources can't pay the mortgages, those mortgages are defaulting. Uh, the, 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 the issue that created all the problems in the financial system that you're reading about in the front page is that these mortgages were pooled in, 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 in a new security. You know, imagine just sort of a jar where somebody threw in a few thousand of these mortgages uh, and then put the lid on it. Um, and, and, and so um, they, 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 they had these new securities and what they did is they said, well, um, the first 83% of them must be really safe because mortgages basically hardly ever default. And, and they rated those, the rating agencies, um, which tell people how secure something is, uh, rated this as a triple A security. In the world of finance, when you tell somebody that, that a security is triple A, they get rated all the way from triple A's down to triple C's. And triple C means something's about to blow up. Uh, and AAA means there's no possible chance you're ever going to lose your money. And so because 83% of this jar was rated uh, you know, AAA, people bought this all over the world as if it was a security that could never, ever, ever default. And as you can see, um, you know, these were basically mortgages made to, to, to low-income people who weren't even paying, in some cases, interest on it. And the chance that these were going to default was really sky high. Uh, historians will go back and figure out why anybody would believe that these things could be AAA. Uh, but, but, but they did, and they were bought everywhere. So this, this, these, these securities became like American SARS. Uh, you know, they were exported throughout the world, creating enormous problems. Uh, for individual institutions uh, uh, you know, around the world. And in the United States, they, they've created what will be hundreds of billions of dollars of losses for the financial institutions. And uh, uh, as part of Sarbanes-Oxley, which was a law passed uh, uh, you know, after Enron and some other things, we've developed accounting uh, procedures with something called, uh, it's very technical, called FAS 157, which is called fair value accounting which means you, before these defaults even happen, the fact that other people think they're going to happen results in the securities being worth less and you have to take a loss based on that expected uh, value. So the financial institutions were losing all this money without the defaults even happening or people knowing how bad it would be. Uh, and as a result of that, those large losses, um, the financial markets started losing confidence in some of the financial institutions and different asset classes in those uh, financial institutions, principally banks, started trading in a really bad way. People thought they were going to you know, be forced to sell some of those. Uh, and we had a variety of different uh, asset classes uh, ranging from municipal bonds, uh, uh, basically uh, uh, you know, changing their value. People said, I don't want these anymore. There were hedge funds that owned those on leverage. So, so there were margin calls which forced those securities to be sold, which made them worth, worth even less. Uh, that got the banks even more nerv nervous. Uh, that resulted in higher rated securities being sold that were also on leverage. Uh, and what you had was like panic selling of securities rolling through every element of the financial system as people desperately tried to get out of stuff before it would become worthless. And, and this type of rapid uh, uh, deleveraging 
resulted in, in uh, downward valuations for all these securities, a lot of hedge funds going um, uh, bankrupt, anyone with leverage buy, borrowing more than five to one uh, to carry some very secure real securities, uh, not, not subprime, but government-oriented securities, uh, uh, you know, th those institutions got into trouble. And, and what we've had is, is basically a melt in the financial markets where uh, the banks have been so severely impacted uh, that they have stopped lending to certain whole asset classes, uh, you know, particularly leverage lending, which uh, we're involved with, uh, as well as other areas. Uh, the costs of credit have gone up, you know, sort of um, uh, three, three, 3%, 4%, which doesn't sound like much to you, but it, it actually in the overall system is a lot. And what that's resulted in is a financial crisis. It's resulted uh, in um, uh, the Federal Reserve, who's the ultimate protector of the system, uh, very quickly lowering interest rates, agreeing to lend huge amounts of money uh, to the banking system because banks are now, now not even lending money to each other. They're, they're sufficiently scared about what's going on. Uh, and the Federal Reserve is saying, well, everybody can come to me uh, and I'll lend you all money uh, to keep you liquid so this whole system doesn't stop. Uh, now, as it impacts regular people is, is when the financial institutions go into a crisis like this uh, and stop lending or reduce their lending uh, of money, there's less money for regular people to borrow to go about their lives. Uh, and, and, you know, and businesses to get. And as that starts happening, uh, an economy will slow down uh, and, and, and go into uh, uh, recession. Uh, and, and that's what's uh, happening uh, in the United States. So for those of you who are graduating this year, uh, your prospect of getting a job will be less uh, than the people who graduated uh, last year. Uh, and the people who graduated the year before had a much better deal than the ones that were graduating uh, last year. Uh, and, and this is a, a, a problem that's a pretty pervasive one. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and it will probably take longer to get out of this recession than other ones uh, that, that, uh, that we've had. Uh, and the implications of you know, financial markets, which may sound like just sort of a, a, a dry academic uh, course, uh, uh, this will also affect the outcome of presidential elections among other things, uh, because you'll see that from what presidential candidates started talking about uh, nine months ago, which is a lot of foreign policy, uh, war in Iraq, what should we be doing about a variety of those issues, uh, you'll see that by the time this election uh, uh, occurs, uh, that the focus will be uh, much more, uh, and perhaps dominantly so, uh, on the economy, uh, on people defaulting and being thrown out of their houses, uh, on uh, you know, what's happening to the economy generally. Uh, it's going to hit uh, other things such as uh, uh, trade and, and uh, you know, uh, the country being more populist, uh, more protectionist, uh, which also has uh, negative implications uh, because uh, the United States right now is the largest debtor nation in the world. Uh, 10 years ago, we were the largest creditor. And when you're the largest debtor, that means you have to borrow money all the time from people in the outside world. And if we become more protectionist and, and, and outsiders uh, basically say, look, these Americans are starting to like, not have an open world and I'm worried that maybe I won't be able to get my money back or you know, they don't really want me uh, to be part of uh, their, their world, uh, then, then there's the potential that they will invest less with us, which again will raise our cost of borrowing in financial markets, whether they're for treasuries or other types of things, which will have the effect of again slowing uh, our uh, economy. So you, you all are uh, about to enter the world in a very, very, very interesting time. Uh, and uh, the problems with our financial institutions uh, are perhaps uh, the, uh, the greatest uh, that we've had uh, since uh, the, the 1930s uh, in the era of the Great Depression, which is when my dad uh, was, uh, uh, was uh, sort of a young man. Uh, and, and he grew up uh, in the 1930s, and anyone who did, uh, um, you know, would, um, 
would tell you that was just a disastrous economic time because those financial institutions, as opposed to struggling the way ours are, and ours will ultimately uh, uh, be fine, uh, those financial institutions collapsed uh, because they didn't have uh, the kind of uh, 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 sort of safeguards that the system has uh, uh, basically uh, put into our system uh, currently. We learned from the 1930s how to avoid uh, a complete collapse uh, of the uh, uh, financial uh, institutions. Uh, but this is a trying time uh, for, these, uh, uh, for the system. Uh, and uh, the Federal Reserve is doing a really uh, excellent job at, at, at sort of guaranteeing it. And, and if you read about the recent Bear Stearns uh, crisis, uh, uh, which was front page of uh, uh, literally every uh, uh, newspaper in the world, uh, where the, the Federal Reserve uh, stepped in uh, and basically uh, provided sufficient guarantees and credit support so that this one institution wouldn't, wouldn't go bankrupt. Uh, and and there were, uh, you know, it's a brokerage firm. Brokerage firms are not regulated uh, by the Federal Reserve, and they don't have access to the borrowings of the Federal Reserve to protect them, uh, which uh, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, uh, they're sort of outside the system. Uh, and the reason why the Federal Reserve went and did that uh, is that, that the large brokerage firms um, which don't have the, the same kind of regulation or the same kind of ultimate lender, uh, literally have trillions and trillions of dollars of, uh, of, of, of uh, counterparty uh, risk, uh, you know, sort of guarantees that they've given that they'll do something. Uh, and if they go bankrupt, they can't do it. And that leaves the system vulnerable uh, to uh, uh, people expecting performance on things like credit default swaps and things that are too technical to actually explain to you at the moment. Uh, but they, there are so many trillions of dollars of those obligations that if they get into trouble, this isn't just like a subprime mortgage. These are in the trillions. Uh, and, you know, um, uh, and, and just credit default swaps are uh, about $45 trillion, and the subprime mortgage losses will only be a few hundred billion dollars. So the, the Fed was basically going in and saying, we can't take this risk to our overall system. And that's one reason why the stock market has gotten uh, better, because the prospect of a collapse of the system has been really reduced. Uh, I, I wasn't trying to depress you on an uh, early uh, morning. Uh, the American system is enormously resilient. Uh, and uh, you know, there will be uh, solutions that happen over time. Uh, that will uh, deal with this. Uh, but the impact of financial markets, which is your course, I'm just a visitor, uh, is, is really uh, uh, driving you know, the whole overall economy and is affecting the, the global economy. Uh, uh, the countries in Asia, you know, China, India in, in particular as large ones, uh, will, will obviously sustain lower growth rates as a result of this. Uh, uh, financial markets problem here in the United States. Uh, you're seeing uh, the UK uh, having already uh, uh, slowed down. Uh, and, and, and this will probably, uh, as it w has historically, rolled into continental Europe and, and resulted in the whole world uh, you know, growing slower, higher unemployment, uh, and people being adversely affected. So how financial markets work, uh, how they're impacted, and what would have happened uh, if um, these subprime mortgages wouldn't have been allowed to have been made from a regulatory point of view? And what would have happened if they were, instead of being rated AAA, they would have been rated, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, single B. Hardly anybody would have bought them. Uh, and that would have controlled the uh, expansion and the uh, risk to the financial system. Uh, you know, historians will look back on it. And real people, not that historians aren't, but real practitioners will, will try and solve this problem uh, by, by having different types of regulation uh, so, so that you can't get into this kind of risk posture. Uh, so in any case, uh, why, why don't we uh, you know, take some questions. That's, uh, that's an opening. Uh, and we can talk about anything you'd like to.
Dare to be great? Yes? Uh, the question was, uh, can, can, can I take you through a, a good deal and a bad deal in, I, s I assume, private equity or, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, to show you how this works? Uh, uh, well, um, uh, a good deal, um, those are always more fun, by the way. Uh, a good deal uh, was really uh, our first deal. Uh, uh, it was a company called U.S. Steel Corporation, which is sort of a big one. Uh, was attacked by a corporate raider named Carl Icahn, who I think you have some familiarity with, uh, and uh, being a prior speaker. And uh, the corporation didn't want to be taken over, and so they were trying to marshal cash uh, to fight him off. And the way they chose to fight him off was, was, was by buying their own stock uh, at a higher price to give their shareholders the equivalent of a really big dividend but doing it by buying their stock, which gave them capital gains treatment. So they needed to get a bunch of money, so the way they thought about getting some money was to sell one of their big assets. And the asset they chose to uh, sell was um, um, uh, their, their railroads and, and, and barge lines and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, ore boats on the Great Lakes. Um, and to make steel, uh, for those of you who've never done it, uh, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a lot like cooking. You need you know, a variety of different ingredients. Uh, and uh, you know, the ingredients, instead of just being carried into your house in a, in a, in a shopping bag, uh, come in on a railroad because they're iron ore and coke and all these really heavy things. Uh, and uh, in, uh, I guess, around uh, 1880, 1890, uh, a fellow named uh, Andrew Carnegie, who, who owned uh, uh, U.S. Steel, it was then called Carnegie Steel, built all these railroads uh, to bring this stuff in. Uh, and so, so U.S. Steel, you know, wanted to sell it. Uh, and they didn't want to lose control of it because they felt if that was a lifeline artery into their steel plants where it brought in 100% of the raw materials to make steel and took out about 85, 90% of the finished product because steel is like really heavy, right? So, you know, you just can't carry it out and put it on a truck necessarily. It goes out by railroad also, that because this was an artery that went right into the company, uh, and, and if, if we started overcharging uh, for, for the railroad, they were worried that we would bankrupt uh, the steel companies. We'd siphon off all the profit. So we did a, a, a partnership deal where we own 51% of the railroads, in effect. Uh, they own 49, uh, and um, uh, we, uh, and show you how excessive finance can get. Uh, we, we, it was a, I believe the, the deal was uh, somewhere around uh, you know, $600 million, $700 million in 1980, uh, 88, 89. So that's a lot more money today. Uh, and uh, uh, we, we, we borrowed uh, uh, almost uh, you know, all the money. Um, you know, I think we put up like 15 or $20 million. Uh, and um, so, so, so the, the leverage was, was huge. Uh, the business wasn't particularly a growth business. It was pretty stable. We bought it in the middle of a strike, so part of the art of what we did was guessing whether U.S. Steel would come back to the same production level uh, that they were before. Uh, and, you know, our uh, uh, guess slash analysis was correct. Uh, and every year, the profits from that company would be worth uh, more than uh, the amount of money that we invested uh, in the equity. And so we ended up making uh, uh, 24 times our money in that deal uh, in uh, 12 <laughs> years. So in our world, not the academic world, if you make 24 times your money in 12 years, this is regarded as a success. Uh, uh, and. Um, so, 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 you know, that, that, that was a good one. Um, uh, now, a bad one um, uh, sh shows you about, you know, a little bit about the, you know, the volatility and, and, and danger of, of sort of the currency markets. We, uh, in, in, in 19, uh, I guess it was uh, 98, 
bought, uh, um, it might have been 97 or 98, bought, uh, uh, you know, control of the second biggest cellular phone company uh, in uh, uh, Argentina, uh, which uh, was an interesting place to be. You know, I'm sure you all have one of these if you don't have something more elegant, uh, you know, some other, you know, sort of personal device, you know, like one of these that can, you know, get email or it can, you know, you can talk on it, you know, I, you, you can almost, you know, set it up as a disco. You can do almost anything with it. Uh, that that um, we, we bought this company uh, for uh, eight times uh, uh, cash flow, which is not real high for a company that's growing very rapidly in, in what was called an emerging markets uh, country. Uh, this particular country had its currency indexed to the dollar. Uh, so it was almost like uh, investing in, 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 in the United States because what can go wrong? A rapidly growing uh, country invested uh, in dollars. We borrowed dollars uh, to buy this company uh, because in Argentina you couldn't borrow money for a long time. One of the, one of the great things about the United States financial markets uh, is that you can borrow debt for long periods of time. Uh, and uh, this looked to be a very low risk uh, uh, rapidly growing situation where we were hopeful we were going to make four to five times our money. Uh, there was only one problem uh, that uh, Argentina, the country, collapsed. Uh, and uh, I, I mean literally collapsed. Uh, you know, the, the, the linkage, which is called a peg to the dollar, turned out to be a most unfortunate uh, uh, thing. Uh, and uh, the emerging markets, this is when you started with the Russian financial crisis and this crisis, and you had an Asian financial crisis. It rolled through the whole world with currencies rapidly changing their values. Um, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, countries at risk of, of, of collapse. Uh, it got to Argentina and the whole, whole economy pulverized. It was like a depression and they, they, they got off of their linkage to the dollar. Uh, their currency became close to worth nothing. Uh, and then we had to pay our debt back in dollars with earnings in Argentina, which were like worth nothing. And we lost every, uh, every uh, cent, every, every dollar we invested in, in that uh, investment. Uh, and, and even as we were going bankrupt, it was still a good company. So, you know, in finance, bad things can happen to nice people. Uh, and, and uh, you know, e even when you think things through, you can have some really, uh, you know, uh, bad, uh, uh, bad, bad, bad outcomes. Um, you know, we, we, we've had, a, obviously, if you have very high returns, you have wonderful stories. Uh, many more wonderful, uh, you know, uh, uh, stories than, uh, than bad ones. We, we bought a, a chemical company uh, called Selenese um, in about 2000 and uh, three right after the recession uh, was lifting. It was a, a, a company in Germany, but it had only 10% of its activities in Germany. It had about 60% of them in the United States. So it was really a U.S. Uh, company masquerading uh, as a, a German company. Uh, and uh, the price earnings multiples of German chemical companies were very low. The price earnings companies of uh, American companies were much higher. Uh, and uh, uh, so, 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 you know, not, not being entirely dim-witted, uh, what, what, what we did was, was we changed the location of the company, the headquarters from Germany to the United States. They also were, for some reason that we didn't completely understand, had three headquarters uh, operations going, two in the United States, one in Germany. We, we closed uh, two of those uh, three. We invested a lot more money. Uh, in uh, expansion uh, as we were coming out of a recession. Uh, we, we leveraged the company pretty highly uh, and, and we made, uh, I guess it was about six times our money uh, in uh, two years uh, owning Selenies, uh, which is uh, on the New York Stock Exchange now and it's a, it's a lovely company, wonderful company. Um, uh, and, and there are many stories uh, of, of, of that type uh, where we uh, invest more money, move things around, uh, borrow a lot of money, catch fundamentals as they're going up. Uh, and it's, it, the, the, the good stories are really uh, a lot of fun. 
um, you know, we enjoy those, uh, and, and, and so do our uh, uh, investors. So those are, I gave you two winners and one loser instead of one and one, uh, because um, in our real estate business, uh, we've probably, uh, just to give you perspective, we, we, we've only lost money on two situations uh, in, in, in our history uh, uh, out of about 160 investments. So, so the number of good stories to bad stories, I mean, this isn't like Las Vegas, you know, where you end up as a net loser or it's a lot luck. Every time you do one of these things, you, you have a, a, a team of people uh, working on it, uh, some of whom are uh, sort of in their, uh, you know, sort of early 40s, um, you know, who are usually partners. Uh, and then, you know, each one of the firms like ours scales down in some kind of hierarchy, uh, you know, where you have managing directors and vice presidents and associates and, and analysts. Uh, the, the folks like yourself uh, tend to get hired at firms like ours as analysts, uh, and, and which means you, you, you do, you know, statistical work and uh, uh, I guess it's, they're called now models. Uh, you know, on, uh, on computer, which give us an idea that if any of the variables affecting these deals change, how will it affect the overall uh, earnings of the company or cash flow of the company or our ability to service the debt of that company? Uh, and, um, uh, and, and then we can figure out from doing that what price we'd want to pay for the company, uh, how much debt we can safely put on it uh, so that the business doesn't get in trouble. Uh, and, and now, you know, the, this analyst program that firms like ours have and, and people all over Wall Street have uh, is, is like a huge uh, industry for people uh, your age. Uh, and um, th this didn't exist uh, when I uh, was, was in college, and I'm actually not that old uh, compared to you. I, I sort of think I'm almost the same age, a uh, little older. Uh, but. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing having uh, people like yourselves. I mean, in two years, you could be in my conference room, uh, you know, with the, all the rest of the team talking about a, uh, a live deal and, you know, putting in your two cents, uh, you know, a perception, uh, you know, whether you think something's a little more risky. What we do at our firm, whenever we're considering something, we always go around the table, ask everybody. So, you know, we're not trying to intimidate anybody, uh, but we figure that if somebody your age has been working on something and knows the numbers, you know, uh, uh, sort of cold, you'll, you'll have some views. Uh, and it's always fun, uh, particularly for me, to ask uh, because that's how you start the process of learning. Finance is a business that is an apprentice business. It's sort of like going back to the Middle Ages, right, where they had guilds. And you'd learn your business by apprenticing with somebody else who's already done it. Uh, uh, you know, there's a base level of knowledge that you have to have in finance before you can be creative. And the only way you get that is by working with other people who've already done it and are doing it. And people take enormous care when working with uh, folks like yourself, uh, you know, in terms of making sure you get the right answer or not. Um, what I'd say, which is different in the real world, as, as a visitor from the real world, uh, to you in the academic world, one of the real differences is in the real world, there is only one grade for every project, which is the equivalent of a course. And that is an A, uh, an a grade. And the definition of an A isn't the same as in academics. In academics, you can get an A, and I don't know what Yale's current grading uh, curve is now. You can get an A sometimes with a 90. You can get an A with a 92. You can get an A with 93. And you know, that's sort of pretty good. That's an A. In our world, an A is 100. This is, was shocking to me because I wasn't a 100 kind of person. Uh, and my first project that I did, I, I, um, just to give you an idea of the real uh, uh, need for excellence and perfection in what we do, uh, is um, I, I was assigned a project uh, I worked on it really hard. I wrote something up that was like a term paper, uh, which normally you only get to do one a year in the real world. You know, you get to do them every two to three weeks. Uh, and I submitted this thing to uh, a gentleman named Herman Kahn, uh, 
who was a partner at Lehman Brothers, an older partner uh, uh, at the time when I was doing it. And uh, I sent it down to him, uh, and he was waiting for this project. Uh, and um, I, I got a phone call about three hours later, and it sort of went like this. Uh, this is Herman Kahn calling. Is this Steve Schwarzman? And I said, yes, it is, Mr. Kahn. He said, I got your paper. There's a typo on page 43. Bang. And that is the only thing I ever heard from Herman Kahn. <laughs> a slammed phone because a comma was in the wrong place uh, on this piece of work. And I had really, like, struggled. Uh, and that's all I got. An angry man and a slammed phone. And I basically said, what kind of crazy world am I in? What is this about? And what I learned is that any piece of work that you did that wasn't completely correct, you got a version of Herman Kahn in your face, okay? And different people did it different ways, but this was a radically different world, the real world in finance than I was used to. I was a, a major here in something that doesn't exist, I'm sure, anymore. Uh, a creature of the 1960s called culture and behavior. Uh, and what we did is we had an interdisciplinary major uh, with, in, in, in psychology, sociology, uh, biology, and anthropology. In other words, we studied how people thought and why they thought that way. I thought that was a pretty neat thing to be doing. And we had professors from uh, each of those disciplines. We had uh, two uh, seminars a week. We had eight students in the major, and we had four uh, professors working with us all the time. Uh, so I was used to a little softer, more lovable world uh, than uh, finance. Uh, and, and, and so finance for me was shocking uh, that, that people would have to have everything correct all the time. And, and at, at your level, uh, what you'll be doing, uh, uh, you know, that's, uh, th that's sort of what it is. I mean, there's, there's no alternative. People are nice, they'll help you get there, but, but there's no, absolutely no flexibility in terms of getting perfect scores. Uh, now, once you do that, I'm giving you a little career advice here, uh, that you do that for about two years or three years, and, 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 and then after that, you can start being more creative, and, uh, and, and finance can be really creative, interesting, problem-solving uh, uh, business where, you know, it's, it's global, it's fun. Uh, I mean, in my last two weeks, uh, wh where have I been? Uh, let's see. Uh, certainly in New Haven now. Uh, I was in uh, Bahrain, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Cambodia, um, um, Korea, Ireland, and Germany. It's actually really interesting. And you meet people all over the world. Uh, you get to see how they think about issues, how their financial systems and their economies work. Uh, during that, that trip, you know, I, I met heads of countries, uh, head, head of financial institutions. Um, you're trying to figure out, you know, really the most complex stuff in the world, which is how all these systems work and how they interact and, and, and ultimately what you will do uh, in, in an individual situation based upon this immense flow of knowledge and data and, and, and cultural uh, uh, differences. Uh, and, you know, I, I miss China and India on this trip, uh, but we get them on other trips. And, and it's really, uh, finance done appropriately is a wonderful lifetime learning, uh, ever-changing, exciting uh, kind of uh, uh, business. It's, it's, it's not like, you know, sort of uh, selling socks to a department store. Uh, this is really uh, fascinating uh, business. It never stays the same. 
You have so many different people in so many different countries making so many different kinds of decisions that you as one decision maker in that enormously complicated matrix, you know, the chance that you're going to get it right uh, is only because you're absorbing as much information as you can from every place and trying to thread the needle to make a correct decision. So it's a lot of fun. So any of you who go from this course into, uh, you know, being a practitioner, uh, which is sort of what I am in the, in the real world, uh, it's, 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 it happens to have historically been quite financially rewarding, which I guess is like a, you know, I, I think, I used to think that was a really good thing, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 until the U.S. is like reevaluating exactly what it thinks about success. Uh, but but it's, it, it's basically a good thing, uh, and it's fascinating, and I, I would encourage you, if you have an interest in it, to, um, uh, to pursue it. Yes? Can you speak up a little? Yes. Okay, it was a question about carried interest being uh, taxed at uh, a lower rate. Uh, and and uh, next question is, uh, what, what asset class do we think is going to have uh, really high returns over the next five years? On the carried interest question, um, uh, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, has been pretty well, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, surfaced. Uh, you know, um, there, there are a bunch of arguments um, from different sides of the political um, spectrum uh, on this. Um, you know, folks like ourselves who uh, have had, uh, you know, carried interest uh, taxed at uh, capital gains rates since the 1930s, uh, um, you know, are sort of wondering where the whole discussion is coming from. Uh, in other words, this, this has been going on for longer than I've been alive, uh, that, that um, you know, this has been a capital gains treatment uh, uh, item. Uh, the, the, the way uh, uh, carried interest works is that we get a 20% uh, share of the profits uh, of any investment uh, over uh, some type of uh, hurdle rate, which is a minimum return. Uh, in our case, usually it's around 8%. Uh, to, uh, uh, to get this uh, uh, carried interest, um, uh, you, you know, we have to invest significant monies, uh, you know, in, in our funds, um, which is totally unlike normal compensation. Most people to get, you know, sort of, you know, the, the, some people in the government want to characterize this as normal compensation, uh, ordinary income. Uh, people who get ordinary income just work and they get it. They normally don't invest millions of dollars for the opportunity to get their salary. Uh, uh, we also uh, have to uh, if, if we don't make a certain minimum return and we've gotten uh, some of this carried interest, by the time a whole fund's over, we have to pay the carried interest back. Um, most people who own, earn ordinary income don't pay back their uh, income uh, after they've gotten it. Uh, and and uh, uh, in, in uh, uh, carried interest basically comes out of, you know, splitting the profits from a partnership where, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, sort of quite normal uh, for a working partner to get more of a deal than just a, a passive uh, uh, um, uh, uh, investor uh, in, you know, um, whether it's somebody just in a, in a, in a family, somebody works in the business, um, you know, and, and somebody else in the family puts up the money to buy part of the business, usually the person working in the business gets more. Uh, so we, we sort of look at this uh, as, a, as sort of a, um, a, an issue that's now in the political world, uh, and uh, you know, it will be solved in that world. We don't, we don't have much of a say uh, in that, uh, uh, but I, I would say that the, the sort of um, uh, characterization uh, of this as being something uh, uh, as, as a... Uh, uh, you know, sort of a you know, sort of an odd uh, thing. Uh, it's 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 really been going on for 
you know, 80 years. So I, I don't quite understand exactly why it's officially odd now, and it, and it hasn't been for, you know, all that time period. Uh, second, the second part of that question is, uh, uh, I'll ask it a different way than it was asked, which is, what's going to be the best performing asset class uh, over the next five years? Uh, or I think that was more or less what you were asking. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's always hard to tell exactly uh, what, what that will be. Uh, but, but typically, you know, you have to have a view of the world. And I, I think our view of the world is that, you know, the economies of the developed countries are, are going to get uh, hurt uh, over the next year or so. And it, it ought to drive down asset values of a variety of types. Uh, and, and that uh, th there should be a great opportunity uh, out about, uh, you know, sort of a year uh, to start buying companies and other types of assets. Uh, at, at what should prove to be a bottom. Uh, and then um, uh, if you can leverage uh, those assets as the economy keeps getting better, uh, you'll make uh, really great returns. The last time uh, this, this uh, set of circumstances presented themselves was 2002, uh, after the recession in, in 2001, uh, uh, which went into 2002. And we were the biggest purchaser of, uh, of uh, uh, companies in the world uh, in 2003 and 2004, and as a result of that, the fund that we used to buy those companies uh, earned uh, about 51% uh, after fees, um, uh, which, uh, um, for those who keep score of these things, is, is really uh, quite extraordinary, and we think that kind of cycle is going to uh, repeat itself. So, so we would think that, that you know, the private equity business and, you know, you're, you're seeing now, uh, we were just involved with a, a deal that Professor Schiller mentioned, uh, uh, you know, it was in the newspaper this week, I guess, uh, where, um, you know, we were buying uh, assets uh, from uh, uh, Citibank, uh, loans at uh, discounts, and, you know, uh, there will be uh, opportunities in the debt area over the next, uh, year or so uh, that, that also ought to be uh, uh, very good. Yes? How do you feel about and how do you deal with failures in investment? Because you're investing in the equity stock market. And how do you think that private equity will evolve in the future? Uh, the question is, how, how, do, how, do, how do we deal with failure like, uh, like our Argentinian uh, investment? And the second part of that was, And how do we think private equity will evolve in the future? Uh, how, how do we deal with failure? I, I really hate failure. I mean, it's, it's deep. It's visceral. I really can't stand it. Uh, and uh, because I feel so passionately about that, the, 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 the people who work at our firm, uh, all of whom I've been involved hiring, understand how I feel about failure. Uh, and so, the, so we don't have a lot of people around who like failing either. One, because they don't want to disappoint me, but two, because I don't hire people who don't feel the same, right? So this is like a passion not to fail. So when we fail, it's a major, major, major event, okay? This is not a normal thing. And what we do when we fail is we spend enormous time thinking through what did we do wrong? What should we have seen? Are our processes uh, good? Uh, did we misidentify a variable that got us? Uh, or, or did we identify it and didn't, didn't uh, evaluate how bad that can be? We got that wrong. Or did we just simply have bad luck where there are like three or four bad things that can happen? And they all happened, like in, uh, uh, in, in, in a very rapid period of time. And, uh, you know, failure is a, uh, how you manage failure is very important. And some people manage failure by making pretend it didn't happen. And they just go about 
their jobs and people don't pay attention. Well, we lost money on that one. I don't believe in that. I, I like to learn. Sometimes you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. And, and we, we actually changed the way we made decisions at, at the whole firm after a very early failure that, that we had had and changed our whole investment process. And that one failure created most of our successes, right? So failure, when you make a lot of decisions, I used to think we could make no mistakes. Uh, and that's what I always try and do. Uh, but if you're very active in making decisions, you know, I think about this stuff so much that we probably get about uh, 90 to 93% of our decisions correct. Um, maybe a tiny bit higher. But that means we failed a lot, right? Sort of 7% failure. Sometimes we get 95% right. But we're still making 5% failure, you know, across the firm. And so we're always struggling to improve and get that down to almost like nothing. Uh, and, and so, you know, failure is a really important element uh, in learning. It's like bad dating, right? You date somebody, it doesn't work out. That's the way, by the way, most dating is. It doesn't work out. Uh, works out for a while, then it doesn't work out. And, and so all of you would probably think about, what did I learn from this? Why, why did I get involved with this person? Was this a good thing on balance or not a good thing? Uh, you know, am I going to repeat this mistake in the future? What did I learn, right? And that's what we all do in our own lives. And we do it in our commercial life uh, as well. Second part of that question was the evolution uh, on private equity. Uh, private equity um, uh, is an enduring asset class because it basically makes really great returns. Uh, it attracts very talented people. Uh, it reallocates capital around the globe. Uh, it goes where there's um, uh, um, opportunity. Uh, and, and it improves companies uh, by investing more capital in these uh, businesses. Uh, and, and so there's an there's a, there's a enduring place uh, for private equity. Uh, right now, there's a capital crunch, and there's not much money available to borrow except on smaller deals. Uh, that circumstance happened uh, uh, briefly in 2002. It happened 1990-91, happened 1987, happened 1982, happened 1975. So it happens. Uh, and when it happens, everybody always says, oh my goodness, this business is going away, and so forth, and that never ends up occurring because capital always comes back. Uh, the evolution of the business will have a few super bracket kind of firms uh, uh, like ourselves who keep attracting more and more capital, who are investing globally, uh, who have people all over the world. Uh, and, and, and the future for these kinds of businesses, I think, is, uh, is, is, is pretty good, um, quite good. And um, um, uh, you know, you have smaller firms that are in individual countries, uh, sometimes uh, segmented uh, by uh, uh, area of concentration. You know, you'll have a healthcare, you know, group, uh, uh, and, and some of those businesses will do well, some will wither. Uh, you have smaller firms that do smaller kinds of deals. There's always a place uh, for, for that. Uh, so, so I think that um, uh, private equity tends to grow in step functions. Uh, you know, um, uh, as, as a function of how much money institutions have to put in the class. Uh, when uh, stock markets go down and institutions generally have less money, they put less money in the class. Uh, when the markets get better, they put more money. So it's not a straight line of growth. It's a little wavy like that, and I think that will continue. Um, I, think, I think we're done.